Praise God. That's true that the Lord is ours and we are his. And the way we know that is by the Lord telling us that in his word. Now, we really have no understanding, no knowledge of who God is unless he tells us who he is. Amen. We can know something about who God is from his creation, that he's powerful, that he's mighty, that he's wonderful and intelligent. But, but we can't really know God unless he speaks to us. Amen. And praise the Lord that the Lord is not silent. He doesn't leave things to our own imaginations. That the Lord doesn't leave us following around in the world trying to figure out who he is. He actually gives us his word and gives us instructions how we are to live in his world. And so that's why I practice at Temple Hills Baptist Church over the last 15, 20 years has been the man up here on a Sunday morning not pontificating about his own thoughts about what he thinks the world should be or how it should be run by, but by opening up a book, an ancient book, and reading words that God Almighty has given his people for all time to live by. Amen. And so this morning, like every other morning, praise God, over the last few decades, we're going to continue that practice. And one of the, the, the benefits and blessings of reading through God's word and kind of systematically working through books is that you don't get to skip anything. All right. You come to all kinds of stuff. And so while we can talk and preach about different topics from time to time, that, that can be helpful. It's a wonderful thing to let God set the agenda. So that the person up here doesn't have his own hobby horse about what's really exciting to him. Or he doesn't kind of lambast the, 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 the sins and the things that he really hates but rather that he is dictated by what the Lord says in his word. The next passage up becomes the next topic of the sermon. So this morning we come to the next passage up in Matthew chapter 19 of this teaching about marriage, God's faithfulness to us, and divorce. And so if you have your Bibles, return with me to Matthew chapter 19. And this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12 together. Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seat under you. And if you need a Bible for your own house that you can easily understand, we welcome you to take that with you as I give to you. I don't know what page it is if you got a pew Bible, but my Bible is 824. What is it? 824 in your Bible, too. Look at that, right? So you can turn the scroll here with me. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I said to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. As we look at these 12 verses, I think that the structure is, is pretty clear. Verses 1 and 2 serve as, as transitional verses, both literarily and geographically. And then verses 3 to 9, we, we see this confrontation with the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see a follow-up conversation with Jesus and his disciples as they grapple with what Jesus has just said. And in this whole section, here's what I think is Jesus' main point to the Pharisees, the main point to his disciples then, and his main point to his disciples now, to us. The main point of this passage. Don't look for ways out of your marriage. All right. Rather, be faithful to the spouse God has joined you to. Don't look for ways out of your marriage. Rather, be faithful to the spouse God has joined you to. As we walk through this passage, we'll, we'll first notice, number one, just briefly, the, the transition we see there in verses one through two. And then second, we'll, we'll look at Jesus' teaching on, on the kind of meat of the passage. So second point, we'll see God's lifelong design for marriage in verses three through six. Point number three, we'll see God's limited allowance for divorce in verses 7 through 9. And then fourthly, we'll see God's kingdom aims for singleness and celibacy in verses 10 through 12. So point number one, we see just a brief transition, verses 1 through 2. Point number two, God's lifelong design for marriage. Point number three, God's limited allowance for divorce. And point number four, God's kingdom aims for singleness and celibacy. Amen. Point number one, we, we see this kind of transition, right? Uh, verses one and two might, at first glance, seem like throwaway, throwaway verses, just standing in the way of getting us to the, the main portion of this passage, starting in, in verse three. But these two verses are important for a number of reasons. First, they serve as a literary device that Matthew uses marking the end of one of Jesus' five sermons in this book. We noted before that, that Matthew seems to arrange his material around these five discourses or five sermons that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, verse, uh, chapters 5 to 7, in Matthew chapter 10, in Matthew chapter 13, in Matthew chapter 18, and in Matthew chapters 24 through 25. And after each Discourse after each sermon, we see the kind of conclusion statement that we find here in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the sayings he just said in, in chapter 18, it's the same thing we see after Jesus gives his sermon on the mount. At the end of which, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 reads, And when Jesus finished these sayings, that phrase or similar phrase is seen after each set of formal teachings. So this afternoon, you can go back and trace them in, in Matthew 7, 28, in Matthew 11, verse 1, in Matthew 13, verse 53, here in Matthew 19, verse 1, and after Jesus' final sermon, you see it in Matthew 26, verse 1. Again, it just shows us that 
The book we hold in our hands is a piece of literature. Of course, it's more than that. It's, it's God's very word, but it's not less than that. It's literature. It has structure and order. The human author has put together this material in a specific way to spotlight Jesus, not simply as a divine miracle worker, but as a divine messenger. He wants us not simply to see what Jesus did, but also to listen to what Jesus said so that we might be fully trained as his disciples, Amen. which literally just means learners. Matthew means to put us like Martha's sister Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet while he teaches us. But verses 1 and 2 don't just mark a change in literary style from formal discourse to now more narrative events. They also mark a change in location. We read in verse 1 that Jesus leaves Galilee, his, his hometown region in the northern part of Israel, and enters the, the, the southern region of Judea beyond the Jordan. It's important because it's here, in this southern region of Judea, where opposition to Jesus is centralized. Remember way back in chapter 2, it was from the capital city of Jerusalem in this southern region that King Herod ordered the murder of all babies two years old and younger. When he heard from the wise men, wise men that a, a new supposed king had been born, the king of the Jews. And from Jerusalem, he tried to wipe Jesus out. And remember back in chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus said that it was in Jerusalem in this region of Judea that he would suffer many things from the leaders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. As we get closer to the end of this book, this descent down into Judea is the beginning of Jesus' passion journey. What he is marching to is his death, which will accomplish life for us. We were told of Jesus' purpose in coming in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that he would save his people from their sins. He would do it by dying for our sins. And we see him here, not shying away from that fate, but moving towards it, moving towards those who hate him. But with him, following him, are those who need him. Verse 2 says, many followed him. Why? Because they were sick and crippled and hurting. And we read that Jesus healed them there. Wherever he is, there is power. Do you believe that? That Jesus is there now in your marriage and has power to heal it? That Jesus is there now in the midst of your physical suffering and has power to heal it? That he has the power to heal your broken relationships and broken friendships? That he has all kinds of power? Praise the Lord for his omnipotence, for his power, and for his desire to use his power not to crush us, but to care for us. But this display of Jesus' power and popularity that we read of here in verse 2 is met with opposition starting in verse 3 as we see this confrontation with the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce. 
And it brings us to our second point as Jesus shows God's lifelong design for marriage. Point number two, we see God's lifelong design for marriage. Look at verse three. We read that Jesus lands in the region of Judea and Pharisees come up to him and, and testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Amen. Well, the Pharisees are part of the religious leaders in Jesus's day, but they are not commended for their leadership in Matthew's gospel. They are not upheld as upstanding examples of godliness. Instead, the picture we see of the Pharisees in this book is of a group of people opposed to the plans of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed, they exclaim in so many words that Jesus is not the Christ, not the Messiah. All throughout the book, they clash with Jesus. From the first mention of them in Matthew chapter 3, they're presented as opposed to Jesus' forerunner. John the Baptist, so that John calls them snakes. Mm. Their character and behavior matching the one they truly follow, the serpent, the devil, who too is opposed to the plans of God in the person of Christ. Their opposition to the book picks up steam throughout. In chapter 9, verse 3, after Jesus proclaims to a paralytic that, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees say to themselves within their hearts, this man is blaspheming. In chapter 9, verse 11, they get a little more bold and outwardly question Jesus' disciples about their leader. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That is, if he's a holy man. By the end of chapter 9, their opposition is even more pointed. After Jesus heals a demon oppressed man, the crowds marvel. But the Pharisees mumble. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 12, verse 14, their hatred of Jesus has hit high pitch. After he has the audacity to heal a man on the sacred Sabbath, smashing their expectations of what was and wasn't supposed to be done on this most holy day. They, on the same supposed holy day, turned their thoughts to murder, conspiring how to destroy him. That's the context we need to understand the Pharisees and their interaction with Jesus here. They're not just innocent, curious, religious scholars questioning Jesus so they can follow him more closely. We noted last week that Peter questioned Jesus to truly see how he might keep his commands. The Pharisees here, however, question Jesus, seeking to see how they might kill him, looking for ammunition for charges to finally take out their spiritual competition. You see that even in how Matthew presents their purpose in approaching Jesus. They come up to him, he says in, in verse 3, to test him. It's the same thing we read of, of them doing in chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him asked him to, to show them a sign from heaven. It's the same thing again that we see the one they truly follow, the devil do, back in chapter 4, verse 1. Tempt or test Jesus. It's the same word. Again and again, 
and again in the wilderness. And, and how do they test Jesus? And Matthew says by asking him a question about what the law says about divorce. Hmm. Now here's an instance where the Bible tells us a lot about a certain group, the Pharisees, but not everything about them. So what we learn from other sources is that in Jesus's time, among the Pharisees were two different parties. There were those who belonged to the school of the rabbi Shammai and those who belonged to the school of the rabbi Hillel. An analogous situation perhaps for us would be within one party, one political party in the U.S., the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, you find different factions within those parties, right? A far left and a, and a far right. What is the same in the, in the group of the Pharisees? Now, why is that important here? Because one of the significant differences between those, those two schools or two parties within the Pharisees, one of the differences concerned divorce regulations. Those belonging to the school of Shammai said that one could only divorce his wife if he found some indecency in her. They were the minority group. Those belonging to the school of Hillel were more expansive, more free. They noted that a man could divorce his wife over virtually anything, even over something as simple as burning his meal. The vast majority of Pharisees in Jesus' day belonged to this school of Hillel that held this more liberal view of divorce. So for instance, the, the noted Jewish historian Josephus was a Pharisee in the school of Hillel. And he stated that divorce was permitted for any causes whatsoever. Even if you just found another woman who looked better, then you can leave your wife. These two schools were opposed to one another on this issue, but joined in opposition to Jesus. They both, it seems, at least understood that Jesus would be most conservative, accepting divorce on grounds of some indecency. You can surmise their assumption by the question they asked. Notice they don't ask, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife? They both assume that based on passages like Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, that, that Jesus would think it's okay to divorce one's wife, at least for, for some reasons. They ask, rather, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Literally, for any and every reason. Again, they don't even agree with each other on this. But so eager are they to see Jesus caught up that they'll put aside their disagreements for his destruction. Remember, remember again, their purpose and the question uh, for the question in the first place. They want to test Jesus to see if he will say something against what they find in the Mosaic law. Something that will put him at odds with the people. Something that they can accuse him of. You hear what he just said? He don't agree with our beloved Moses. But Jesus takes this test and turns it on his head. How? By quoting Moses. All right. Notice how Jesus responds to this question about divorce. By pointing the Pharisees, the supposed religious scholars, back to the Bible. To the first book of the Bible, Genesis, a book that Moses wrote. He says in verses 4 and 5, have you not read? He treats them like little kids, right? Have you not read that he 
who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Amen. And the two shall become one flesh. Amen. You see, the Pharisees have begun at the wrong starting point. They assume that marriage and divorce go hand in hand. Divorce for them is always an option. But Jesus goes further back to a different starting point. To the very first marriage and God's design for it. Jesus goes to the purpose for which marriage was instituted. Not the circumstances for which it can be ended. Jesus starts with the life of the thing. Not the death of it. He begins by reminding them of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Where we read that God made man in his image. Male and female he created them. And he made them not simply to be colleagues or teammates. He joined them together in the covenant of marriage. This male and female creation was not random. God intentionally made them different and with separate but corresponding parts that they might join together and become one. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question by reminding the Pharisees by reminding us of our place, of marriage's place under God. He created us. He designed us. And the designer has rights to tell people how his design is supposed to be run. You see here, even initially, how differing Jesus' mindset is from the Pharisees, perhaps from ours. Even in the last clause of their question, if one can divorce his wife for, for any cause, they place marriage into the hands and the minds of men. Whatever we deem unacceptable in our spouse, or whatever we deem as more acceptable in someone other than our spouse, becomes grounds to move on from marriage. We elevate our evaluation of things Above God's determination of things. But Jesus reminds us, dog, you are made. You do not run things. God runs things. Always has and always will. He made man and woman and for a purpose to be and stay together. Notice Jesus moves in verse 5 to then quoting from Genesis chapter 2. A portion of scripture where after God makes woman out of the man, he brings her to the man in a union. Amen. So that Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 explains in words what just happened in action. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The verse that Jesus quotes here. And notice who Jesus attributes making this statement. Not merely Moses, though he wrote the book, but the divine author behind it. God, the same one who created them, male and female, in verse 4, God is the one who says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Amen. Two become one. 
the once separate from each other and joined to their families now separate from their families and join to form a single unit, a new family, one not to be separated. Jesus says in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Where therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This idea of two becoming one, one flesh, speaks not merely of the emotional intimacy and connection that is shared between a husband and a wife, but of the physical intimacy that is there. Friends, God created sex to be enjoyed exclusively in marriage between a man and a woman as a very real picture and experience of this one fleshness. Amen. There's not only two bodies that join together, but it's two souls coming together. It's what the world misses when it tries to make sex so casual. You don't need a spouse. You just need a little friend. The benefits. You don't need to commit to marry to have sex. Just a buddy who occasionally comes over to Netflix and chill. But friends, there is no such thing as casual sex. Sex is meant to be committal, not casual. And when it's not, regardless of how you feel, it kills you. You see, there is something spiritual going on when you join your body to another's in sex. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. When he says that one who joins his body just one time in a sexual act with a prostitute becomes one with her. If you've had the sad and sinful experience of having sex outside of marriage, then you know it, it doesn't just have a physical component, but a spiritual one as well. If you are introspective enough to see it. If you're a man, you may have, have been all into a woman that you met at a bar or who you worked with on a job, who you were really attracted to or, or had dated for a while. But perhaps the instant you slept with her, your feelings changed. Your heart turned stony and you became immediately uninterested. She became nothing more to you than a piece of meat. Let's see the story of, of Amnon's reaction after sleeping with Tamar in 2 Samuel 13 for a biblical example of this. That's right. Why this sudden change? Sex had been used in a way that it wasn't intended. With someone it wasn't intended for. If you're a woman, it explains why when you slept with a man, not your husband, there was a part of you that went out that, that was longing for more from him. Perhaps it was understood up front that this was just a physical transaction for pleasure. But your feelings changed afterwards. Maybe you wanted more. A relationship. Why? That's what sex was intended for. A relationship, a marital relationship, where these two people, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, glue together, concrete together for life, not just physically, but spiritually. Amen. And it's why when one spouse goes outside of that relationship and glues him or herself in sex to another, it's so damaging to the marital relationship. Jesus will get on to that in a, in a few verses. 
a husband and a wife are to stay together forever. Amen. Saints, that's not just an Al Green song. That's a Jesus song. All right. Amen. That's what Jesus says. Amen. <laughs> Divorce? Why are you even bringing that up, Pharisees? Mm. Marriage is what God made, what he intended. A lifelong marriage. He put man and woman, husband and wife, together. Amen. And he's sovereign. If he wanted you to have a different spouse, you'd have one. All right. Amen. And if it's God who's joined you together with that spouse, then let not man, let not you or me separate from him. Amen. Amen. Now notice Jesus doesn't say that marriage is inseparable. Some people who say that divorce is never legitimate, grounded on the fact that marriage is a covenant and covenants can't be broken. But that's just not true. Israel broke its covenantal bond with God by turning to pagan idols. An act that God says in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, he sent her a decree of divorce for her. Sending her away, the exile of Israel was a sign of God divorcing his adulterous people. Amen. No, a covenant can be broken. The marriage covenant can be broken, can be separated. What Jesus is saying here is don't you be the one who breaks it. That's right. Who sins and causes the separation. Amen. Permanence is God's plan for marriage. And because God made it and made us and put us in our marriages, then permanence must be our plan for marriage. Amen. So, so friends, have you made permanence your plan for your marriage? Mm. Or in your mind, is there an ounce? Amen. I wonder how much joy and freedom and comfort we might be forsaking by constantly dangling divorce whenever there's a difficulty. Mm. Now that's incredibly countercultural. The world says that freedom and joy are found in, in fleeing the difficult marriage. Mm. But you find that staying in it and knowing that you're both staying in it is incredibly freeing and comforting. Amen. You can go through rough patches rough seasons, have deep disagreements without fear that the other person will just get up and dip out. Yeah. You can actually have hope yeah. that you can work through conflicts and find common agreement even if it takes weeks or months or years because neither of you are going anywhere. Yeah. Where quality time, yeah. conversations, yeah. Even physical intimacy might not be enjoyable now. You can eagerly anticipate the enjoyment to grow as you study each other and learn each other and communicate likes and dislikes. And even if none of those things change, if disagreements and dissatisfaction remain, you can have joy. All right. A deep and real and solid joy in knowing that you are being obedient to God's will and remaining faithful to your spouse for life. Since you might be here this morning contemplating a divorce, let down by marriage and seeking an exit strategy, 
Don't. Don't seek to separate what God put together. Amen. Rather, trust that what God put together, he can sustain. And he can supply all you need to live a godly life in this marriage. And to use you in your marriage for your spouse's good and for God's glory. Amen. If you're not married, but you desire to be married, lock this plan into your mind. God's plan for marriage Lifelong marriage, lock that into your mind. Pray for it now. Know the, the lifelong commitment of fidelity that God holds marriage out to be. Sisters, don't enter into marriage because you're getting older now. And the prospects are slim. So any joker that just professes Jesus will do. And certainly don't do it if he don't profess Jesus. Your brothers, don't try to grab a wife just to satisfy your flesh. Yes, Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. But he didn't say only to marry so you don't burn with lust. Consider the the commitment, the lifelong good commitment that must be made to love and care for a wife. As a church, we need to help each other carry out God's plan for marriage. Amen. Amen. So let's pray for married couples. Let's pry into each other's lives. Ask how each other's marriages are, and let's be transparent about that. Amen. Let's protect each other from thoughts and actions that might draw us away from our spouses. And saints, let's promote lifelong marriages as normal. Amen. Praise God for, for Jerry and Jane West over 50 years of marriage. Amen. Amen. Praise God for Reggie and Michelle King's 45 plus years of marriage. And praise God for brother Kevin and his wife Kathy's 40 plus years of marriage. Praise God for Joe and Colette's over 30 years of marriage. Praise God for Kristen Nicole's 20 plus years of marriage. You can ask them. Those years have not all been easy. There's been a lot of hurt and disappointment and innumerable trials, but they've stayed. Amen. Saints, let us follow them Amen. as they follow Christ and staying committed to our spouses for life. That's God's design for marriage. Amen. But God's good design has been tainted by sin. And all marriages don't last forever. Amen. Some end in divorce. So how do we account for that? Now that's what Jesus addresses in point number three as we see God's limited allowance for divorce. Point number three, God's limited allowance for divorce. After asking Jesus their initial question regarding the, the lawful grounds for divorce and hearing him harp not on how marriages can be ended, but how they are to be sustained, the Pharisees have seemingly accomplished their purpose. They came to test Jesus, and he's seemingly fallen right into their hands. They have Jesus in a position now where he's seemingly at odds with Moses, at odds with the Bible. You say that people shouldn't separate from marriage. Well, why then, they ask Jesus in verse 7, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The Mosaic instruction they're referring to is from 
Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where Moses says that if a man found some indecency in his wife, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And in that passage, he, he's more than anything trying to care for the woman, that she wouldn't be misused over and over by multiple men divorcing her for, for simple reasons or simple causes. If divorce is not to be done, though, the, the, the Pharisees asked, why did Moses write about it? Why didn't Moses command it? And maybe you're asking yourself right now, that's a good question. If God's plan is for marriage to be lifelong, then why are there any instructions at all about divorce? Yeah. Now, thankfully, these hard questions aren't left hanging in the air. Amen. Amen. God actually wants us to know why what's in the Bible is in the Bible. He wants us to know what what's in the Bible means. He wants us to know how what's in the Bible applies to us. So Jesus answers in verse 8. It's because of your hardness of hearts that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That is, divorce is not God's ideal. From the beginning, it wasn't so. His ideal was and is a lifelong union. But because of human sin, Moses allowed, not commanded, rather permitted, made a concession for divorce. And it's not like Moses is a rogue agent, just making up his own rules as he goes. Hmm. Remember back in, in verse 5, in quoting Moses' writings, Jesus said, God is the one who said hmm. Well, it's the same with Moses' permission of divorce. It's ultimately God's permission of divorce Amen. because of human sin. We noted this when we looked at divorce a couple of years ago in Matthew chapter 5. The sin has entered into the world and affected everything. And so God gives his people laws, not as if they existed still in a sinless Genesis 1 and 2 world, but as they exist now in a post Genesis 3 world. All right. Laws meant to legislate how his people ought to live in the midst of a sin riddled world. Amen. It's why God gives laws on how to discipline children. His plan, his ideal is for children to perfectly obey their parents. Amen. But children do not always do that. They rebel. And so God gives instructions for what to do when they rebel. It's why God gives laws on what to do when business deals aren't upheld. His plan his ideal is for people to love one another and to be just towards one another. But we don't always do that. We deceive and manipulate each other. And so God gives instructions on what to do when that happens. A sin has affected every institution, every relationship, including marriage. And divorce was given as a concession to sinful hearts to deal with situations when God's ideal has been affected by sin, but never as God's intended design or desired goal. Amen. Amen. But you know, we, we humans can, can twist concessions and make them commands. Amen. The Pharisees say, Moses commanded us. We just, we just being good Jews here. Moses commanded us to divorce our wives. 
And they stretched his permission to do so only when some indecency was found. They stretched it to include anything when, when something I simply don't like is found. But Jesus clears the air in, in verse 9. He finally answers their earliest, earlier question as to if one can divorce one's wife for any cause. He finally answers it forcefully. No. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Yeah. Jesus says, don't use some indecency any way you want. No, if anyone divorces his wife on any other grounds other than sexual immorality, a broad term outlining a, a number of sexual sins, then that person is in sin. And if that person remarries, which every divorce decree in the first century included as a valid option, then that person would actually be committing adultery as the grounds for their divorce were illegitimate. That is, you can't say, I'm going to divorce my spouse for any reason and remarry and it'd be okay. Yeah. No, they're limited reasons. Divorce is only allowed when one spouse has been sexually unfaithful. In that instance, the wronged party has the right, not the requirements, All right. but the right to divorce the spouse that cheated on them and later to remarry. And even then, that right doesn't have to be exercised. Why is sexual immorality a legitimate ground for divorce in Jesus' eyes? Again, because of what marriage is. A one flesh union. And stepping outside of that marriage and having sex with someone other than your spouse defleshes the union. It breaks the covenant of oneness. It joins yourself with another who's not your spouse and becomes one with them. Now, some Christians don't agree here. They say, they say there are no reasons ever to divorce. That's a pretty minority view over the, the history of Christianity, but, but some faithful Christian brothers and sisters have held that view over time. They say that the, the term here for sexual immorality really is, is only restricted to sex during the betrothal period. Wow. That's why Joseph sought to divorce Mary earlier in the book when he found out she was pregnant even though they were only engaged. But the problem is that, that that restricted usage for sexual immorality is never found in the New Testament. Amen. I mean, Paul and all the other writers in the, the Gospels and letters use porneia or sexual immorality not to talk about sex during an engagement period, but all kinds of sexual impurity. And every single writing in the first century used sexual immorality in that same way. Plus, the engagement discussion isn't what frames this discussion here. The, the Pharisees don't have in mind an engagement or betrothal period. The passage is about divorcing one spouse, That's right. someone you're already married to. Hmm. Some also reject any grounds whatsoever for divorce because Jesus' words on divorce and marriage in Mark and Luke don't contain this exception clause that we find here in Matthew 19. Well, we found earlier in Matthew chapter 5. But, but Jesus doesn't need to, to make the fullest expression of a statement every time he uses it. All right. And the gospel writers don't include all of what Jesus said every time they note what he said. Jesus seems here in Matthew 
to make explicit what's implied and assumed in Mark and Luke. Amen. A divorce on grounds other than sexual immorality is sinful. Remarriage after divorce that was initiated for a purpose other than sexual immorality is sinful. Again, it's sexual immorality that breaks the covenant. Now, that's the larger category of when a divorce can be legitimately sought, when the covenant has been broken. It's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, can say that abandonment by an unbelieving spouse is also legitimate grounds for divorce. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement by Paul. Since Jesus here only talks about one exception, sexual immorality. But Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands any acts that break the covenant, like killing the one flesh union through sex outside of marriage, or killing the one flesh union through leaving that one flesh union through departure as grounds for divorce. Again, that's not to say that a divorce must be sought. Now, praise God for the way that he can and does and has redeemed past sins and made marriages trophies of his amazing grace. Hmm. But divorces may be sought by the innocent party in, in such instances, in such rare instances, and only in those instances. Not because you've grown distant. All right. Or you've fallen out of love. Or you're no longer happy. We don't want to make light of those things. Those things are real and painful. In that circumstance, don't first leave. Fall into the hands of a loving God. Amen. Ask him to help you to remain faithful Amen. even when your flesh wants to flee. Hmm. You know, I think those who deny that there, there are ever any grounds for divorce often have good motives for doing so. Yeah. They want to uphold the sanctity of marriage and protect it from perversions. Amen to that. Amen. But friends, we must not be more strict than Jesus. Amen. Amen. More stringent than Paul. Hmm. We've said this before. We don't want to allow what God in his word disallows. Hmm. That's a problem. But it also cuts the other way. Amen. Neither do we want to disallow what God in his word allows. You know, sometimes I think what we find in some of our churches is a misplaced moral outrage. We say of the victim of infidelity, I can't believe he divorced his wife. I can't believe she divorced her husband. Instead of aiming at the offense and the offender, I can't believe she cheated on her husband. I can't believe he cheated on his wife. That is, if you don't want the covenant to be broken, then don't break the covenants. Yes, God hates divorce, but not in a sense that shames or stigmatizes anyone who's ever been divorced. And not in a way that stops all instances of divorce, but in the sense that he hates the sin and the sinful acts and the sinful actors that precipitate a divorce being sought. Amen. Amen. In these first nine verses, Jesus has effectively taken divorce off the table. It's not in God's original design, and it's only valid in very limited circumstances. Look, the Pharisees were wrong in their assumption and their practice that divorce could be pursued for any reason. 
for any cause, but rather faithfulness was to be pursued at all costs. Now, where did Jesus' words put us this morning? Again, if you're married, stay married. And work to strengthen your marriage. Husbands, love your wives. That's hard. Engage them. Lead them, not lord over them. Engage them. Commit to them. Serve them. Study them. Enjoy them. Right? Solomon says, enjoy the wife of your youth. Amen. Amen. Don't complain about her. Enjoy her. Amen. Wives, love your husband. Submit to him. Respect him. Even when his actions and his words might not be respectable. Mm. Even when what you want to do is complain. Couch those complaints in love. Care for him. Serve him. Trust that this is the man that God gave you. Amen. Trust that this is the woman that God gave you. Amen. And worship God in it. Amen. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been the victim of infidelity or some other covenant-breaking act and have been divorced. If that's so, I, I pray the Lord would comfort you with his care this morning. Amen. I pray that he would remind you that unlike humans, he is always faithful. Amen. He will never leave you or forsake you. If you're currently single, I pray he'd make you contented and not bitter. Satisfied with his love for you. And if he's provided another spouse and you remarried, I pray that he guards you from suspicions of fear of what your current spouse might do based on how your previous spouse acted. Amen. Amen. Trust the Lord to sustain your marriage. Amen. Perhaps you're here and you've been divorced, but it wasn't for biblical reasons. Well, if you haven't already, then repent. Turn to God and ask for forgiveness. No. That no sin is so great that God cannot forgive you. Yeah. Trust, rather, in God's provision for all sins. Yeah. The death of his son, Jesus Christ, Amen. who took on flesh and became one of us and took all our sins in our place on the cross, suffered and died so that we could be saved. Amen. He rose again so that all who call on him might know the freedom from all sins, from their guilt, from their power. Right? From the constant reminders, Jesus says they are forgiven in him. Amen. Amen. Trust in Jesus. Amen. Trust in him. Repent and trust in him. Amen. And bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Part of what that means is that if you were divorced for an unbiblical reason and you're currently single, you should not remarry. It would be, Jesus says here, adultery because in God's eyes, the first marriage is still valid. If you were divorced for an unbiblical reason and you've since remarried, call out to God for forgiveness and trust him for it. And then go and sin no more. Amen. Stay married to your current spouse. Don't double down on sin by divorcing that spouse as well. Yes, your ending your first marriage was sin, but take heart. Jesus died for sinners. Amen. For repentant sinners. Mm. And you can know his forgiveness. Amen. If you're unmarried and, and never been married, again, take Jesus' words here about the marriage covenant seriously. Mm -hmm. Marriage is marvelous, but marriage is also meant to last. Mm -hmm. 
through all kinds of hardships. It should be for a lifetime with no easy outs. Yeah. Don't lightly consider entering into it. And don't think that entering a marriage is the only or even the best option for you. The Lord can and will use your singleness yeah. for his glory. That leads to our fourth and final point. God's kingdom aims for singleness and celibacy. God's kingdom aims for singleness and celibacy. Jesus has been countering the Pharisees, but he's also, we learn, been teaching his disciples. They're always in earshot of what he's saying. They've overheard his instructions regarding marriage and his lifelong commitment. They've heard him nullify most grounds for divorce. And so in reaction, maybe overreaction, they brought out in verse 10, if such is the case with, with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Yeah. And some of y'all might say, that's right. But notice, Jesus doesn't respond by softening his stance yeah. or lessening the commitment of marriage. Rather, he takes their statement, it's better not to marry, and says, that may be true for some people. Amen. He says in verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying. That is the, the saying the disciples just said regarding not marrying. The ones who can receive it is the ones to whom it has been given. And then he closes off in verse 12 stating that, that some are single and celibate well, like eunuchs from birth. Perhaps by a physical defect that, that doesn't allow for sexual intercourse. Others are celibate because they've been made so by, by men. Amen. Perhaps as a form of physical torture or punishment. But others have chosen a lifestyle of singleness and celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. Amen. Their choice agreeing with what the Apostle Paul would later say. That, that they can use their singleness to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Hmm. You see, marriage is not ultimate. God is. Amen. Those who choose to stay single show that by faithfully giving their time and attention to magnifying him through their singleness. Amen. And for those who choose to marry, the same is true. Marriage is not ultimate. God is. Amen. And they use their marriage to magnify God in and through their marriage. Their faithfulness to one another, a reflection of his faithfulness to us. Through our faithfulness in living life, in marriage or singleness, we show a watching world what God is like. Amen. Faithful, loving, sacrificial. And how has he most shown that ultimately? Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Who loved us and gave himself for us that we might be his bride. Amen. And Jesus who died and rose again to bring us to himself, has promised that he will by no means ever cast us away. Amen. Praise the Lord Amen. that Amen. we are his Amen. forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your commitment and your faithfulness to us, Lord. We thank you for the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. We thank you for the way you've called us to live faithfully in both of those assignments as long as we might live. Help us, we pray, in our weakness. Lord, help us to be content wherever you put us. 
Lord, help us to remain faithful, knowing that you are faithful to us and that we are to be ambassadors for you. Lord, help us to enjoy our wives, enjoy our husbands, enjoy these seasons of singleness, and know, Lord, that you have us right where you want us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be useful for your kingdom and that you would get glory from our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.